Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. We are recording. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So um, with us today is Bill Sutton. Hello, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here is Catherine Georgie Manu. Hi, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I'm Catherine Manu, sometimes known as Georgie, and I'm the co-publisher of the Express News Group. And Brendan O'Reilly is with us today. Hi, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I am the features editor. And Joe Shaw is here as well. Hi, Annette. Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name's Annette Hinkle. I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. Joe's eating his lucky charms. I am. I hope it brings us all luck in 2020. Do they still taste like stale marshmallows? That's always what I remember. Oh, yeah, but... And, you know, don't get me started on Lucky Charms because I contend that I'm the only person in the world who rakes the marshmallows off and eats the oat pieces and then saves the marshmallows for, like, dessert for breakfast. Do you think you're the only one that does that, Joe? I think I might be the only person in the world who does it. No, I well, I don't eat Lucky Charms now, but that was always the way to do it. You always save the marshmallows to the end, sure, and they flavor the milk. <laughs> you're the only person over 50, though, so you have that. <laughs> Brendan, you're always after me, Lucky Charms. Was this your favorite cereal as a child as well, or did you develop this affinity for Lucky Charms as a, an adult? No, it started in, in childhood for sure. I also like cocoa cocoa pebbles a lot what i like about cocoa pebbles is how they turn into just sort of a sludge but but the flavoring of the water is better i would argue that it's better than than um cocoa krispies uh, are we really talking about cereal is that what we're doing yeah we really are it's going to be interesting to see how we segue into the news from lucky charms speaking of luck i just do the black coffee thing so similar color but <laughs> fewer nutrients this week as we're approaching late august i can't believe it's sort of like this whole year i don't know if you guys feel like it like i feel like i've been stuck in my house for years on end but i also feel like it went in a flash it's like this very weird dichotomy it's a time warp it's just been so odd it's hard to keep track it's remarkable to me that it's almost labor day already it it just the summer just flew by well you know we get a do-over of this one right they're gonna add it to the end (laughs) get this year back like maybe you may not want it when you get it, but you'll have it. Well, well, they are, according to Suffolk County Steve Ballone yesterday, who had a press conference in Southampton on, on Thursday and has decided that there will be no Tumbleweed Tuesday at all this year, that, uh, that the summer season is going to extend into the fall and maybe even into the winter. Um, and, and officials are hoping that um, that all the tourism businesses can make up for a lost spring um, in the fall. Hmm. So because he says it, so that makes it official, right? So, so Steve Ballone is trying to prove that time is malleable and we can, we can time shift into the fall. Exactly. It sort of fits a, a trend, right? This, this has been a trend already that, that we've seen it over the last 10 years or so that, 
uh, it, Tumbleweed Tuesday sort of disappeared, that, that you did have sort of a steady flow from summer right into the fall, and, and things really didn't slow down all that much. I'm sure it's going to be uh, much, much more prevalent this year, but this isn't a new thing. We, we, we've seen an extension of our season into, into September and, and even into October uh, for years and years and years. I mean, I think we all anticipated that though, yeah. right? That um, there was going to be a significant population boost. I mean, we've seen it in the news coverage of the schools already. They're seeing that their enrollments are increasing. Anecdotally, you would just figure that people would choose maybe not to live in dense urban populations and would prefer to be in a more rural area where we've had such a low infection rate. I mean, it all makes sense. Um, and now we've just had, you know, our county executive just confirm that it'll help local businesses. And as a local business owner, I agree with him. You know, it was interesting. The story posted on social media yesterday, and I saw like a lot of reactions that were like, no, you know, the locals are going to hate this. And as a local business owner, I'm so grateful for local business that we potentially have the opportunity to see a little boost in revenue in a time of year where we're usually, you know, girding our loins for the off season. You know, it also used to be that the people leaving on Labor Day were the same people who showed up on Memorial Day. And then what we also saw in the past 10 years is that people weren't renting Memorial Day to Labor Day anymore. The people who rented for the month of August to the last two weeks of August were not the same people who were renting in July. People kind of realized like, oh, I don't have to stay in the same place all summer. I could get a two-week rental and then I'll spend two weeks in Europe and two weeks in Florida and two weeks here, two weeks there. And we've just taken this trend where we've been going in that short-term direction for years, for more than a decade, and we just upended it. It's interesting to me that the, the way that trend ebbs and, and flows because we were a long-term rental community for a long time but then it evolved into people buying properties and we became much more of like a year-round part-time resident community for a long time and then I think with the prevalence of Airbnb and some of those other options we've evolved back into an area that has a lot of shorter term rentals uh, even more so than longer term rentals and, and every one of those steps has sort of been an evolution for the community. And, and uh, so I, you know, but I think we, we are, we have a much stronger base of year round property owners now um, who are using their properties uh, off and on throughout the year than we ever did before. So um, I wouldn't surprise me that those people will be here um, in sort of a safe haven uh, through through the holidays. I remember as a kid growing up in East Hampton, I mean, when I was really little, on Tumbleweed Tuesday, people would actually gather at Town Pond in East Hampton and wave goodbye to the flood of people leaving town. Um, and it hasn't been that way for a really long time. I think you've seen a really strong shoulder season through the holidays, and then it's really January through April is just nothing. Was, let me ask, was that a sarcastic wave or was it like <laughs> a genuine, y'all come back now wave? <laughs> Thanks, see you next year. <laughs> Which actually rolls nicely. Uh, Bill did a great segue into this and we can segue into the homestead tax idea that's on the table now uh, in Southampton town, which uh, 
was was discussed this past week and this is an interesting idea so you can't tax part-time property owners uh you can't enact a special tax uh to tax people who don't live here year-round but what you can do is enact a tax on everybody and exempt year-round property owners do i have that right brendan right we we have other examples of that right we have star the new york state rebate where uh, as long as it's your primary home, you get a certain exemption on your taxes. That's a little different because the state ends up actually making up the difference and sending that to your school district so the schools don't lose any revenue. But I'll give you another example, which is the veterans exemption. Towns may opt in to offer a veterans exemption on property tax. Uh, when that happens, the veteran pays less in property tax. Everybody else pays a little more, so it balances out. Uh, you have firefighter exemptions for volunteer firefighters, right? So let's take that idea of the uh, tax break that only veteran firefighters get or only military veterans get and apply it to every primary homeowner in Southampton town. I believe the story said about 16% of the properties in town would qualify for this and it would be everybody. I mean, you're talking about um, if you own a $20 million property but you live here as your primary residence year round, you would get this uh, assessed a break on your assessment of 50,000, your first $50,000 of your property tax assessment would be exempt. Correct. Is that how it's set up? That's the deal. Uh, how you define year round is always tricky though, right? How you define your primary residence is tricky. You could, you could spend less time in your primary residence than you spend elsewhere, but still decide that's your primary residence. If you have two, it's a little easier to do the math. Well, what about somebody who has three houses and one of them they only spend 40% of their time in? Is that their primary residence? Or is their primary residence just where they choose to cast their vote? So is the goal of this, of this um, assessment really to raise more money or just to encourage people to stay here year-round? No, it's going to be the same pie. I mean, it, what you're, you're just going to pay a different, your your responsibility will be a smaller or bigger slice of, of that pie. People who aren't considered year-round residents under this plan, their taxes may go up a little bit to make up for um, the reduction in property taxes for the year-round residents. And this is just Southampton Town. This is not a countywide. No, this is just Southampton Town. Yeah, and and it's 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 an idea. It's not a new idea, by the way. There are lots of resort areas that have this type of uh, a tax exemption for year-round residents. And the theory being, part-time property owners uh, use a lot of the services, and and it can be expensive. And so it's meant to give a bit of a tax break to locals. I think there's a lot of difficult hurdles for this legislation, though. One of them Brendan touched on is the devil is going to be in the details of who qualifies for this exemption and who doesn't. But I also think it's going to be a tough tax to enact because it is a new tax on businesses as well. Business properties would get a tax increase. This is meant for residential property, full-time residential properties. And so it's a tough time to talk about enacting a new tax, even if the tax impact isn't going to be great and, and all that. The optics of discussing any kind of a new tax in the middle of a really shaky economic period, especially for local businesses, I think it's going to make it a tough sell, which is kind of a shame because I think it's, a, as I said, it's it's an innovative idea that's been uh, enacted in other other areas like ours, and I think there is a real 
argument for, for providing some tax benefit to year-round residents um, because we pay such a heavy price in so many other ways. I mean, is there a tax benefit to providing something similar for year-round local businesses? I mean, if you look at different communities, you've seen the evolution of Main Streets in different ways. Uh, where I grew up in East Hampton, there was a robust downtown when I was a child where there was a lot of year-round business owners. And I think I can count on one hand <laughs> the number of year-round business owners in East Hampton Village um right now <laughs> that that are actually local businesses that aren't you know a franchise of a luxury brands you know opening their east hampton pop-up you go to sag harbor conversely and there are a lot of locally owned businesses up and down main street um you know and i think you see a mix of that in southampton village those locally owned businesses are struggling especially those that are paying the astronomical rents that local business owners have to pay to do business out here if they do not own their building. I think that in those examples, what, I, what I'd really like to see is a tax on vacant storefronts. That would be excellent. Yeah, because there's landlords where, uh, I had an example from a year ago where we were discussing how businesses can come around in the winter and how there can be pop-up businesses in the off season. And somebody who was a reporter from elsewhere called and said her mother was an artist. She wanted to do a pop-up for a month in a storefront that was going to remain vacant. And she was told that the landlord could not be bothered to rent out the storefront for one month. So we think that there's something that would happen that would trigger uh, more year round business landlords to let people come in and do winter business. And unless they're going to pay the same rates that people were paying for over the summer or close to it, the landlords really aren't interested. But if you tax a storefront for being empty, then suddenly that landlord has a reason to get somebody in there year round. The other thing about being a building owner is that you can write off the depreciation. So even if you have no tenants, you could be experiencing a huge tax savings through writing off the depreciation of a decaying building that's causing blight on a village. I saw a video on Facebook recently of Bleecker Street in the city. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but Bleecker Street um, in Manhattan, it was sort of, I don't know all of the details of it, but the landlords just kept they had the, the freedom to raise rents and raise rents. So they started getting these really high end places in there and then the places pulled out. And now Bleecker Street, which used to be full of mom and pop record stores and really funky fun shops is just one empty storefront after another, the whole stretch. Well, and the empty storefronts have a real impact on other businesses too. When we did the code revision in Sag Harbor Village in 2009, uh, one of the things that um, the planners at the time, InterScience Research Associates, looked at was why Sag Harbor was so successful as a business district, um, why it brought people in, why there was this great walking flow to the village. And it was because the storefronts were open and because they were a diverse use of small um, individual businesses and uses um, in East Hampton, you know, come really October so much of the downtown is shuttered that the few businesses that are open become destination businesses. They're not going to be, it's not a place you're going to go and walk around for fun and maybe, oh, I see this storefront, so I'm going to walk in and do some business there, or maybe I'm going to grab a bite to eat while I'm in downtown. 
you just, you only are going to go to that downtown if you have a purpose. So it really hurts the businesses that are trying to maintain a year round presence. It makes it really impossible for them to stay open. It's interesting. It's a way to use taxes to start nudging uh, development in the way you want it to, to go. And, and the town's never really done that. And I was thinking about this this morning in preparation for our conversation. And it's intriguing to me because I don't think the town, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the town's going to really experience any kind of a, of a major financial crush related to the COVID-19, like the county. The county relies on um, sales tax revenue very heavily from its businesses, but the town's so heavily uh, based on property tax revenue and the property tax revenue is going to be solid and, and, and across the board. And I don't think spending at the town level is going to go up significantly. So uh, the tax, the, the idea of tweaking taxes, uh, at least as far as the impact on the town itself, won't be an issue. The town doesn't have a fiscal crisis. They can get creative right now. And maybe it's a good time to get creative uh, and address some of the issues. Well, I wonder about the beach permit revenue because they did have reduced occupancy on beaches. So maybe there was fewer seasonal beach passes sold. Maybe there was fewer day passes sold. And I wonder how much of a dent that might put into things. And from a tax impact, you do also have to consider the fact that residents will be um, dealing with probably an increase in school taxes next year. Schools are certainly going to be impacted by COVID, not just in terms of the financing that they're going to have to come up with basically to take a whole new look at how they're doing education and all the resources that that costs, but they're probably looking at significant cuts in state foundation aid. I think Governor Andrew Cuomo has predicted about a 20% cut um, in foundation aid, just because the state is facing such a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar budget shortfall as a result of COVID. That's a great point that that anything the town's going to do with the assessment is going to impact the schools as well. I mean, your biggest tax item on your tax bill is your school taxes. It's not your town taxes. It's not your village taxes. It's your school taxes. So do we see this as an opportunity to maybe rethink the way schools are done? Like, I'm just wondering how this whole COVID crisis has sort of put a spotlight on the way different districts deal with their schooling and the way that they're financed. I think that there's always been an equity between school districts. I mean, you had great educational authors like Jonathan Hazel writing amazing books like Savage Inequalities decades ago about how different school districts benefited from their taxing districts and, you know, where they were situated. And as a result, public education, there's huge disparities, you know, across the country and certainly across even our own individual communities on the South Fork. Um, who are, you know, we're largely very fortunate where we are. Um, but there is, there are still disparities. And I think COVID has definitely shined a light on that as districts grapple with how to reopen safely, how they do that, what kind of space they have available to them, what kind of reserve funding they have available to them, what happens in spring school and what they're able to accomplish in East Hampton in a very small school district that was already overcrowded and is in the middle of a huge building project is very different than what a district like Sag Harbor, for example, would be able to offer which was not necessarily overcrowded and just benefited from the addition of a very expensive new school building in the former Stella Maris Regional School property. So yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely seeing that disparity in terms of how it's funded. 
I mean, I don't, I, I, they're funded through property taxes. It would take a pretty big shift on the state level, I think, to change that. I think it would be an interesting conversation if we could start talking a little bit more about consolidation of school districts. That's the elephant in the room here. I feel like it's, it's the COVID crisis may find, we've talked about this, that, that it may finally spur a conversation that's long overdue. The East End in general, but the South Fork in particular, really needs to start looking a little more closely at school consolidation. I think I think that the number of school districts we have just creates inequality because when you have so many small districts and they all carry administrative staffs, there are going to be inequities when that happens. And, and consolidation is one way to help address that. I agree, but it's such such a tough hurdle to, to jump over when you have you know, the, the smaller school districts that have pride in what they're able to offer and pride in their history and their background and all that. And to try to convince them, I mean, everybody has to agree, you know, for consolidation and how do you, how do you get them to, to come on board with that idea? That's always been the issue. There's got to be, you know, large incentives. When Eastport South Manor combined years ago, there was huge building incentives to build the new school. They got a $100 million high school for for practically nothing because the state came in and paid for it. But at the same time, there were three other districts that were supposed to join that consolidation and pulled out at the last minute because they all wanted to go their individual way and couldn't come to terms and couldn't come to agreement on that. And then you had the same kind of issue with, with Southampton and Tuckahoe, where you had, you know, one district was in favor of consolidation and the other wasn't. There's always a, a big battle there. And so you need to figure out what, how to incentivize that to make it worthwhile to, to everybody and, and how you overcome generations of pride in, you know, in the school district. I wonder if it may just be that the state at some point is just going to come in and say, you're doing this. I think that's the only way it works. I think that you have to have the state get involved because like Bill said, you know, Southampton and Tuckahoe is a perfect example. It doesn't make any sense that those districts are not consolidated into one. Um, and you had a very strong push by the Southampton Association to end that bid. Um, you know, the reality is when you do a consolidation like that, one side of that taxing district is going to see an increase in their taxes. The irony of it is the inequity is also why that failed because one side has a benefit and doesn't want to suddenly give that benefit away. So yeah, it's not going to happen organically. I don't think the, the idea of consolidation. And I think Tuckahoe and Southampton is a great example. I think Bridgehampton has fought the idea of consolidation for years and it's, and it's more what you talked about, Bill, of an identity thing. It's, it's, it's important. It's, it's really crucial to that community and uh, has a unique kind of presence, but, I think all of those things are going to make it impossible for it to happen organically. Someone from the state is going to have to come in and make it happen. Although I do think that there will be a push by parents in a way that there hasn't perhaps been before. Parents are up in arms on all sides of how school districts are opening. There are parents who don't want the districts to open at all. There are parents who want them open five days. There are parents who want live streaming where it's not happening or want five-day remote learning where it's not happening. And what a lot of people are talking about is, well, this district is doing that. Why can't we do this? And so maybe you start to see parents realizing that while you might not necessarily get to have that same community pride in your district. 
that your children might have many more educational opportunities if administrative salaries are funneled into new kinds of programming. You know, I, I lived in West Hampton Beach for, for 20 years. Um, so it's, it's always kind of feels like home to me, but I, I thought, so Kitty, Kitty Merrill wrote a story about the sewer project in West Hampton Beach moving forward, $17 million um, sewer project that's been planned for a couple of years. And, and honestly, I had wondered given COVID and everything that was going on, whether they were going to have the, um, the stamina following the Main Street revitalization project last year, pre-COVID. Um, you know, whether a village officials would, would have the stamina to be able to move forward with the project. And it appears that they are. They're putting out our RFPs. They hired the consulting firm. They're looking for, for grants and, and they're going to move forward with an 18 month project to tie the sewer district in the village along Main Street and some condos south of Main Street and pipe it all the way up to Gabreski Airport to the sewage treatment plan up there. So that's interesting. Like a lot of people don't realize is that sewage treatment plants are kind of what allows um, downtown villages to become more dynamic because you can have more restaurants online. Is that right? That's usually the benefit of having a sewer district, right? Absolutely. It's going to be a benefit for, for businesses. Um, you'll have more wet uses, you'll have more restaurants, that type of thing. Um, and you can also have more Main Street apartments. You can have apartments above the stores, which they have some in West Hampton Beach now, but you're going to be able to, to do more of that. And it's just, I, I think that, you know, the current administration in West Hampton Beach, just the vision that they've had, they've talked about the sewer district for, for years and years, decades, maybe. Um, but just in the last few years to be able to do the Main Street revitalization project and, and to push forward on the sewer project in the midst of a, a pandemic, I, I think, you know, they really need a round of applause for for their vision and, and for moving forward with it. I want to make it clear, Bill, if I, if I understand correctly, the sewage, the, the digging that they're going to have to do to put sewers in is all behind the buildings. So it won't tear up the, the main street work that's already been done. It's, I think that's, that's something people might, might need to understand is that they, they just made this beautiful new main street streetscape uh, that isn't going to be damaged by the sewer project. It's the sewer projects all, behind the buildings and things like that. It's going to be disruptive, but it really goes hand in hand. West Hampton Beach laid the groundwork uh, by doing that whole revitalization of Main Street. Now, by adding sewers, you've created a, a really rich environment for restaurants and bars and, and affordable residences over stores and shops. I really think West Hampton Beach is, is almost a, a test case for how all of the other villages that don't have sewers might benefit. And if it pays off for them, like I think it will, it sets the stage for Southampton Village and, uh, you know, for, for a lot of the other villages that don't have sewers. Uh, it'll, it may clear a path for how you, how you do that and what the benefits are. And speaking of a uh, call out for West Hampton Beach, the West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center was called out by Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier in this week because they had held their Beach Stop concert last Saturday night. This was a drive-in concert of a band that played uh, Beatles music. And they had, I think, at least 150 cars there with people in them. And they were under a microscope because 
of the Chainsmokers concert that happened in Watermill in late July. And they did everything right. They had the health department there and lots of law enforcement and everybody was looking for any infractions and apparently there were none. People stayed in their cars when they had to use the facilities. They had the masks on. They didn't disobey the rules and they proved that it can be done right if you do what you're supposed to do. I, I hear there were some... Um middle of the night phone calls and conversations from certain state officials to certain village officials um, w warning about the, the, the scrutiny that, that was going to happen. And, and again, the, you know, the village officials were able to, uh, to step up and make sure everything went, went right there. Yeah, so we can do it. We can do it. Wasn't there a controversy with Lucky Charms a few years ago? Like the colors or the dyes or the I don't know, shape. The racist imagery. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, Joe, how do you feel about supporting that cereal? <laughs> I, I, I choose to stay out of the whole. Uh, Joe looks like the leprechaun. Are you kidding? <laughs> hey, Dana, you're not part of this. You're not part of this podcast. Sorry. Yeah, just I'm stay saying. out of this. That's Dana Shopfolks, our photo editor at the Express News Group. <laughs> Come on, Joe, give it your best Irish brogue. Oh, no, no. See, every <laughs> time I try and do something like an Irish brogue, all of my, all of my accents sound exactly the same. <laughs> do they're the magically delicious. Come on. Uh, no, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be bullied into doing this. No, I'm, <laughs> it's, I'm not good at it and I'm not doing it. No. No. I actually think it would be a really bad idea. <laughs> they were actually magically delicious, I have to say. Yeah, Dana just uh, inserted a, uh, a little leprechaun doll onto Joe's shoulder, and they do bear a striking, striking resemblance. I do kind of look like him, don't I? Yeah, you do. <laughs> a little bit. This, this guy's Seamus, by the way. That's his official name. That's what we call him. Uh, he's been a lucky charm for us. Please make this COVID-19 thing end, Seamus. Well, this whole thing started with St. Patrick's Day parades being canceled one after another. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.